Hi folks, today we're joined by Chris Anstey, who's one of the best ever basketballers to play for Australia. Two times he played for Australia in the Olympics. He's a three-time NBL championship player, coach in the NBL, played in the NBA as well with the Chicago Bulls and the Dallas Mavs. So we hear about his amazing career and we'll also find out his thoughts on playing against Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen and Dennis Robin and that championship Chicago Bulls team back in the day. Welcome to Legends with Bevo. Thanks to the Holdy, Coopers, Anytime Fitness Glenelg, and Paradise Mazda. And now, here's your host, Bevo. Chris Anstey, great to have you on Legends with Bevo for a chat, mate. Um, what have you been up to with this uh, COVID-19 situation? Uh, probably, uh, thanks for having me, but probably like most people, I've found new hobbies. I've spent a lot more time with my family, and uh, I've been pretty fortunate to have a, a couple of roles that I've, I've been able to hold on to through this. So, um, you know, very fortunate for that. But um, I've actually been writing a lot. I, I used to write when I was younger and sort of it's one of those things that takes a lot of time. So in the absence of the ability to coach and, and get in front of people, I thought, I thought I'd find some time to put some ideas, well, not on the paper, but onto a computer screen and, and share them that way. So that's been fun as well. Yeah, I've really been enjoying reading your, uh, your stories and stuff, mate. They're very insightful and, uh, yeah, keep that up. I'm, I'm really, I'm sure there's a lot of people around the world love that. I'll be I'll trying. That <laughs> and obviously the last dance has been uh, very popular. Some people have loved it, some people haven't. Um, what was your take on it and uh, what was your thoughts? Because some people have said that there's a few things that weren't necessarily true about documentary. Oh, no. I think everything was true. Um, I mean, there were probably, of course, things like anything that you leave out and you want to put forward an opinion, but I thought it was pretty accurate. Um, clearly, from an Australian perspective, there are a lot of people I've spoken to who would have loved to have heard from Luke. Uh, that didn't happen. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think that the documentary came at a perfect time and the fact we're still talking about it weeks later, you know, a documentary that was, was centred on events that happened 20-plus you know, years ago... Um, shows the, the gaping hole that live sport left. But um, now, look, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed some of the insights into, you know, a little bit of the behind the scenes about Michael Jordan, how, how it really affected his teammates, probably even with a little bit of retrospect, which was interesting. But um, now, I guess the other side for me was, I, you know, I walked into that building for a season and just seeing some of those old, those old places and sites around town was a little bit, uh, it was fun, fun to watch. and reminisce a little bit and show the kids and let them know that I was there. And uh, I think just like a basketball fan, I, I enjoyed that element, but also took a lot from probably the lessons from Phil Jackson and some of the other guys as well. Do you feel as though um, Krauss sort of messed up there and they could have won one more championship that fourth in a row if they'd kept all that same group around? Um, hard to tell. I think probably one of the things that got skipped over was how good a job Jerry Krauss did at, at retooling the team during the years that Jordan and Pippen were there because, you know, those two were the only two that were the constant threads through the six championships. And I think Krauss did a pretty good job of retooling along the way. Uh, yeah, I think they probably deserved another shot and I think they probably need to make some change. But, um, yeah, the, the big one was Phil Jackson and it's a little bit disappointing with a lot of front officers that when they want to make change, they wanted to be the coach first. So... Phil Jackson and his ability to deal with egos and personalities and different uh, backgrounds as, as good as anyone I've ever seen, maybe outside of Greg Popovich. And, you know, he went on to win another, 
I think, three championships with the LA Lakers. So it just proved that he was still able to coach. But, um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen him have another shot. They would have needed a few extra players. But uh, sometimes you don't know how good you've got. I mean, they were the best of all time. But um, another year with, with some small change and they could have rebuilt at any stage. But the, the drop-off was just incredible. They were best team him in the world to one of the worst teams in the NBA, if not the worst team in the, in the NBA overnight. Um, and many would argue they actually haven't found a way to rebuild and they've gone 23 years now. Yeah, you were a part of the Chicago Bulls um, post-Jordan Pippen. What was it like being there? Because it must have been a strange feeling, um, you know, going from all the expectation of winning championships to, you know, like you said, being one of the worst teams in history. Yeah, there was certainly no expectation. Um, <laughs> expectation to not be very good. Um, but, uh, you know, I actually wrote about this is that the, it was, it was aimless. You know, I think everybody was trying to prove that they belonged in that, you know, from the coaching staff to the players, nobody had a defined role that was established. We didn't have leaders in the group. We had veterans and great people and great players, but, you know, Hersey Hawkins, Randy Brown, Dickie Simpkins, they're incredible people, Tony Kukoc, but they hadn't really led before that they'd been a role player in a team with a superstar around it so it was it was different for them um in the absence of that genuine uh established leadership you know Alton Brown Ron Artest probably got away with a little bit more especially Ron than than what they ordinarily would have Corey Benjamin was another young player but uh I think everyone was just trying to prove themselves players coaches and no one was really pulling for each other but um yeah that's what the absence of uh, consistency and continuity in a group does. Um, so it felt transitional, but still when you walk into, the, into that room, into the training facility, into the stadium, um, you see the championship banners, you see the trophies, you know you're a part of a franchise that you know, the, the minute you're wearing that Chicago Bulls logo on your chest, it's an incredibly proud feeling and I'm certainly very proud to have worn it and uh, fortunate to have been a part of the franchise for a season. And you got to go head-to-head with the likes of the, the Dennis Rodmans and, and, like I mentioned before, Pippins and Jordans and these sort of guys. And um, you had a, a bit of a scuffle with that uh, with Rodman when you were playing for the Mavs. So. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I only got to play them one time. The, the first time we went to Chicago, I didn't play. And it was pretty disappointing. But, you know, got to catch up with Luke Longley and, and got to pick his brain and spend a night with him. But by the time they got back to Dallas and everybody knew that it was real, that, that Jordan was retiring, the Bulls were breaking up. This was their last dance and yeah, it was in March um, towards the end of the regular season. So it was the only chance I was ever going to have to play against the Bulls. And um, yeah, I've told the story a few times, but um, got to the game, my friends were there, my family were there. A lot of people had traveled around the world to see it. It showed how big it was. And um, it was just a different feel to any other game that, that Michael Jordan, down the other end of the court when you're in uniform, knowing that you're going to play against him. And I knew I was because, well, I thought I was. Um, I've been playing 30 minutes a game for the last few weeks. I'd started a few, so I thought undoubtedly I'll get a chance here. Um, you know, that once-in-a-lifetime experience to play against the greatest of all time. And I didn't play in the first half and I was shitty. Um, <laughs> my mind wandered in the, in, in the halftime break and I was trying to figure out how to get a photo with him. And all I could come up with was fouling pretty hard and try to get in that photo, but um, <laughs> I got in early in the third quarter and we found a way to hang around and 
uh, Michael Finley and Cedric Sabalos in particular, two teammates of mine, played incredible. And, uh, you know, I played, you know, 18, 20-odd minutes in that second half and sort of found my way into the game, made a few bad mistakes and was nervous as hell. But, um, you know, by the time, well, we tied it and sent it into overtime and uh, I got subbed out for Sean Bradley to win the jump ball. And by the time I came back in, uh, with about three minutes to go in overtime, we're up. And that was another completely wild feeling of being subbed in to close out the Bulls. It was crazy. Um, but we did. We won. I, I hit a jump shot. I had a dunk. Um, Rodman and I had been sort of niggling at each other all night. And, you know, that was just a lesson in basketball and how to play without the basketball for me that night, which I, I took with me for a long time. But... Um, you know, he, he got into me a little bit. I sort of threw an elbow and pulled up a millimetre short but wanted to let him know that I knew he was there and sort of wasn't backing down. It turns out that actually endeared me to the Dallas fans a little bit, um, you know, as a rookie standing up to him. And it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, what's he going to do on a basketball court? You know, he's got a lot more to lose than probably what I did. So, look, we ended up winning. It was an incredible experience um, to, you know... A, suppose in hindsight have that lesson that if, if there's a chance I'd always been naive that if I can score one time or if I could stop someone one time and you know you've proven you can do it the I, I think success is the ability to replicate something not to prove you can do it one time and we're able to replicate scoring enough and stopping them enough that one particular night that we won so uh there was a chance we took it. Uh, we won. I don't know how many times we'd be able to do it if we had that game a thousand times again, but uh, that's irrelevant 20 something years later. Exactly. You'll take it, like you said. So uh, you've beaten one of the best teams of all time, mate. So, <laughs> And it's funny you mentioned before Luke Longley uh, because Chris Smythe, who I'm sure you know well, is a mate of mine and, um, here in Adelaide. And I actually said the same thing to him. I said, I'm really surprised that it wasn't more about Luke. Three championships, you know, he's a pretty big part of, those, uh, of that dynasty and really wasn't mentioned that much. Yeah, he wasn't. Um, and that was a little bit disappointing. And for I don't buy the fact that they couldn't afford to send media out. There's plenty of media in Perth that could have done the drive down the highway with some, with some set questions. Maybe Luke didn't want to. Um, but for anyone who's ever heard Luke speak, and he doesn't do it that regularly, but he's one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. And, you know, last time I, I saw him, we're in a room of his peers, my peers, some of the people we looked up to at a... It's called a Pete's Bar. I think Phil might have been there. Um, down in Melbourne, we have a Pete's Bar reunion every year, the old bar at the old Albert Park Stadium. And, uh, yeah, the old basketball players come down and we catch up. But Luke spoke a couple of years ago. And it's one thing holding a group's attention in a big room. It's another holding a big room full of your own peers who probably know your story and have heard it all before. But Luke held their attention for an hour and a half, two hours, and could have gone for another two. Um, he's just that good. So if he ever does do something where he gets into a big room and, and speaks, uh, whatever it costs, go and listen, because he's one of the best I've ever heard. Yeah, I really hope I get the chance to do that. And uh, I said to Phil the other day, if he ever comes to Adelaide, I'd love to meet him for a beer as well. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, he's a good man have a beer with Luke. <laughs> and now uh, you've also um, got some involvement with the digital athlete. And uh, shout out to Carly Post, who... But it speaks very highly of you, Chris. So what's your involvement there, mate? That's nice of it. Uh, no, it was something where, you know, I suppose always looking to educate myself. Um, wanted to understand a little bit more about digital media. Wanted to understand... I mean, I understand the 
impact it has on athletes, but a little bit of uh, yeah, how I can actually implement change with some of the athletes I work with, um, how I can, I, I don't like the term brand, but maybe, you know, even with this writing, when I've been able to, to put something online, the, the ability to have it reach as many people as I can. And, you know, just some, some really interesting uh, lessons for me in that space. It's not my strength. I'm always looking to learn. And, you know, Carly's been fantastic. She, she's done a lot with some good people. And, you know, I know I spoke to Brad Johnson, the, the ex-Bulldogs captain, who speaks highly as well. So, um, you know, it's been really fascinating spending time and picking her brain. Yeah, I actually interviewed Brad recently. He's a good fellow as well. And, and yeah, you're right, Carly's wonderful too. Um, now, you also represent Australia twice for the Olympics uh, with the Boomers. Um, well, that must have been pretty cool uh, representing your country as well, Chris. Yeah, it was. I'm a little bit different to most people where I still always felt like the country never... I've got to be careful how I say this. I was still representing myself, my family, my teammates, my friends first, um, sort of every time I played, and especially when I put on an Australian jersey because I knew they were taking each step with me. Um, they were following closely and, yeah, the country was critical. Uh, my teammates were important I always just still felt like the people close to me came before the broader country that I hadn't really met. And I don't say that in any way other than I think it's important to remember where you came from and who you do represent every time you pull on any jersey, um, not just an Australian one. I don't think you change, but the experience was, it was incredible and it was heartbreaking at the same time. You know, walking into the Sydney Olympic Stadium for the first time was absolute an absolute blast that that sense of pride and, and sharing that moment um having had my time again i wouldn't have done the opening ceremony and i tried not to i tried to convince the guys not to do it in beijing because it takes so much out of you that your performance for the next 48 hours is, is shot i mean it's a great life experience but i would have rather win a medal um you know you're on your feet for about eight hours that day um and it's not what you do before a, a really important game um, and both Olympic Games I've been at, we, we didn't start well. Um, and then, of course, Athens I missed. Um, and that was, you know, made the team and was missed through injury not long before it. So some incredible moments, but some really disappointing ones to not win a medal, uh, to be really close, to miss one. Uh, but again, that sense of pride and, I guess, achievement in making the team. And, you know, we did the best we could or the best we knew how. And, uh, there's a lot of lessons in that. We played the best in the world. We met some great people and we gave it everything we had, which I'm proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and going forward, obviously, uh, Tokyo 2021 now, not this year. Um, yeah. the, the Boomers are you know looking pretty good and there's a lot of talk about them being a realistic medal chance. Um, how do you see them going, Chris? Yeah, they're a re they, are. They're a real they are a realistic medal chance, but so are probably eight or nine other countries. Um, the thing with being so geographically isolated here in Australia is we lose track of other countries in the world who are doing what we're doing here. Um, the NBA is global. Um, we have so many great players here, but the, the best of them are, are all around the world. And, and that's the same with some European countries, but you know, we don't have as much time together. We, we don't have as many neighboring countries to play games against all year long. Um, so we are behind in that regard. And I think our success at the, Tokyo Olympics is really going to come down to how early the NBA players commit, whether they can commit with uh, the postponement of the start of next NBA season due to coronavirus. But it's a real watch this space. I think the teams or the countries that are able to get together earlier, spend quality time together and 
you know, have some of that shared experience uh, leading up to the Olympic Games will be a step ahead of the rest of them. And um, as mentioned at the start of the, uh, start of the chat, I'm really enjoying hearing about your stories over the years with basketball. And, and one particular one that you wrote about last week, Chris, was when you were stuck in Russia. And oh, I can't believe uh, what actually happened to you, but I really feel sorry for you, but it was really interesting hearing yeah. about it. Would you like to share about the listeners out there more yeah, about it? Look, it was just one of those... Russia, I thought I'd made the biggest mistake in my life when I went there and I was a couple of months in. It was brutal. The temperature, no one spoke English. The living conditions were, were hard. Um, it's just how it was. But um, I found a way to get through that first year. And, you know, early into my second season, I'd switch clubs. Um, I'd, I'd gone with Martin Mercep, a friend of mine, to, to Unix in Kazan. And, you know, I had a few rules. And one of them was if I ever got really sick, um, to get out, get to London, get to a, a westernised medical system. Um, and flying home one day, I had these sharp pains. It turns out my appendix was ready to burst. And, um, you know, I, 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 the, the team doctor somehow got me to the hospital. I, I was evaluated, um, didn't understand a word he said other than surgery. And I sort of said, London. And I got Mercep on the phone and he was telling me, now your appendix is about to burst. It could kill you if you're on the plane. Um, he said, but it sounds like he's done this operation before. And um, again, just the the facilities aren't what we're accustomed to. And I guess we don't realise how, how good we've got it here. But, you know, I was rolled into a room full of, you know, 20 odd wooden beds with sheets on them, stripped naked and shaved in front of everybody, rolled back through the corridor without any clothes on and into an operating theatre that sort of resembled, a, you know, like a dolphin torch hanging from the roof and those green plastic bins with the black lids and full of bloody bandages and um yeah uh, absolutely petrified i didn't think i was going to make it through and you know i got strapped down they, they pulled a couple of other tables from somewhere strapped my arms down strapped my torso down and then sort of started um putting the uh the anesthetic on and i'd just been dry shaven and uh stung like crazy and you know still but naked and freezing cold outside and um, the, the catheter or the, sorry, the anaesthetic went into my wrist and I thought I'd try to relax and sort of just close my eyes and try to make the, the stinging subside. And, you know, next thing I knew, it felt like as soon as I closed my eyes, that, that sound you get when you go to the, the cutlery drawer and you know, rattle it around a little bit, I heard that. So I looked up and the, the surgeon was, was over my appendix with his scalpel ready to go and he'd had his mask and hat on. I just saw these two eyes kind of started yelling at the nurse. The nurse yelled back. Um, she dialed up the, the anaesthetic and I'm not sure if they thought I was a different weight or I told them the wrong answer, but I kept my eyes open as long as I could uh, until it actually got me and uh, absolutely thought I wasn't going to wake up. And I thought, this is it. This is where I'm done in the middle of this shitty hospital in Russia. And, of course, I was very happy to wake up. Um, had to spend a week in hospital because there are no antibiotic tablets in Russia. It was all done by injection still at that stage. And, yeah, rough week. Um, no staff at night time, sort of getting through the nights and, uh, yeah, no TV, no tablets, none of that. But... Um, the minute I got out, I got on a plane to Dallas and made, you know, found a doctor that I used to see and had him check me over just to make sure they hadn't left a rag or a knife or something in there. And I thought if I went home to my own doctors, there's a big chance I won't come back. So uh, I thought Dallas was the next best thing and uh, did that, got back and ended up playing again. But um, 
I'm alive. I've got a, a much longer scar than was probably necessary to 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 you know to prove it, but um, not the best. But it, again, it, it's interesting, especially in retrospect. Sometimes it, it's those sort of moments and the harder times when you realise how fortunate we have we are to have what we have here in Australia. And you know, kind of between you and me now, I'll never forget coming back to I signed for the Melbourne Tigers in our first practice game. Uh, with my second time around at the Tigers was against the Adelaide 36ers in Millicent. And we had this, we stayed at this little roadside hotel and you had the little breakfast hutches and all that kind of thing. And yeah, it was one of those $80, $90 a room for two in a, and there were a few complaints within the team. I couldn't have been happy. It was the best hotel I'd stayed in. It had heating. I could understand the menu um, five-minute drive to a stadium where I could speak to teammates I understood. I, I was wrapped. And, uh, again, I think just through those times in Russia, I just became so appreciative of what we have here, appreciative of my teammates and the opportunity I had. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't have got that without spending that time in Russia. Yeah, and you've got a great story to tell. And like I said before, you've survived now, so it's all good. Stories <laughs> are much easier to tell when you're alive. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And now you've been uh, since 2010. You've been involved with Caulfield Grammar as a coach there, and you've coached in the NBL, NBL as well, Chris. Um, any more coaching aspirations going forward? Could we see you one day coaching the Boomers? Well, I'm still coach. I've coached. I've been a part of Basketball Victoria State program for five years. Um, you know, I've been a part of the Australian Junior program for two years. Um, and yeah, like you say, Coach Caulfield. I've I've been around junior basketball with the girls at Dandenong and. Uh, been at Caulfield now for for ten years. So, look, I I still love coaching. I never went anywhere. I just didn't do it in front of people. Um, and I've enjoyed a lot of the the young athletes and some of the older ones that I've coached as well. And uh, you know, it's interesting. You always feel like you improve and evolve as you go along. But um, I've sort of I've, I've learned a long time ago never to say never to anything. But I'm enjoying coaching young athletes who you know haven't quite figured out what it means to be their best yet whatever that is and helping them understand that and give them some sort of direction and belief that they're able to be a little bit better than what they are and you know i really enjoy that sort of 16 through to 21 year old age group um mbl who knows wmbl who knows but um I'll, i'll always be involved in sport i'll always be involved in sort of coaching mentoring whatever it might be i just I guess the older I get, the, the further removed from actually playing, I, I can detach myself from that and understand that, you know, I'm pretty fortunate to have come across and spent time around some of the people I had. And, you know, a lot of, I think any any coach will tell you that, or any good coach will tell you that they didn't create or make up a lot of what they, they coach. It came from somewhere else and it, it formed the philosophy. And that's no different to me where I'm very fortunate to have been around some incredible people and I'll continue to share what I've learned from them. And you're a three-time championship player in the NBL, Chris. Um, obviously, you know, we're seeing a lot of players playing in the NBA at the moment. I mentioned that before with the Olympics and how good Australia's looking at the moment. But um, in terms of the NBL competition itself, can you see it getting closer to the NBA in, in terms of the standard? And, you know, no, it'll, no it'll, never get, it'll never get close to the NBA. We just don't have the money. Um, you know, we don't have a, an $80 million salary cap. Um, we we officiate the game differently. Look, the biggest difference between the NBA and the NBL is the, the athleticism and the physicality. And it's one thing many young Australian kids just don't get is that, and we as a basketball, as a, we as basketball as a sport don't get it, is that 
we spend so much time on court playing and developing our skills, but we don't spend nearly enough time off court developing our body, developing our strength, our speed. That that's what wins games of basketball. Skills a component, but it's not nearly the most important one for me. Um, you look at Dennis Rodman, who maybe took ten jump shots over a season, but incredible multiple effort, re, you know, vertical jumper, rebounder, tough and physical. Um, you just don't get that here. Um, we need to find time as a sport for our young athletes to have the time to invest in their bodies, uh, to give them an off-season to grow and develop and to, to not feel a need to make money off them by having them play in team after team after team all year long because, you know, if you look at even our even our NBA, sorry, the, the Olympic team that we're going to roll out to, to Tokyo, um, you know, not most of them didn't spend, you know, they spent a lot of their years overseas in other environments where they prioritise that, whether it be college or Europe. Um, not many of them solely played here in Australia. So there's still a big gap that we need to address. Um, but that comes at a financial cost because the fees won't be the same for the, you know, for the fee-paying basketball public. So um, can't even remember what your question was, the gap between NBL and NBA. It's... <laughs> Uh, look, it's, we're, we're still a long way off. It, it's, it's a fantastic, but I mean, so is everywhere else in the world, but it's a fantastic league where the most probably 94 feet full court defense, press break, we're up the floor, we're different. Um, and we're, we're rewarded by the way the game's officiated because we're probably the, how do you say this politically quickly, we're the softest officiated league in the world where we're still not sure what fouls are. We don't reward athleticism. We don't reward strength in a contest. We, we penalise, you know, soft hands on fouls and, and we reward flopping. Um, we need to get rid of that. We need to reward strength. We need to reward athleticism. And that, in turn, for me, provides a better spectacle anyway when we see that type of athlete uh, come here to Australia and play. Yeah, well said. Well, Chris, it's been a fascinating chat today. And um, like I said before, I'm really enjoying uh, your writing on, on your Facebook page. Keep that up and... Um, look forward to speaking again in the future. And um, yeah, keep up the great work, mate. Will do. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for the chat, mate. I've enjoyed it. No, my pleasure. Thanks so much, mate. Cheers.